here we go, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on Monday, April 15th. 2019 kicking off the show subculture by one of my all-time favorite bands new order as always i'm your host jamal hayden we've got a big show to get to today we've got nba playoff action in full swing we've got major league baseball mets yanks talk a little bit more about the ales tampa bay and the red sox uh, in particular but we start with the event unlike any other the masters and, of course, uh, Tiger Woods is, to some, improbable victory. Uh, although, if you're a golf fan like I am, and you actually watch a lot of golf, which I do, and you pay close attention, which I also do, uh, it's really actually not that surprising at all that he won. But we'll get to the actual golf and the outcome and his win and how that all came about in a second. Um, but... Uh, I find the the reaction to Tiger Woods' win uh, a fascinating case study in as far as where we are uh, as a society um, and 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 how we view success and how success and winning really forgives all ills. Um, well documented, Tiger Woods is uh, off the course, shall we say, uh, issues indiscretions, bad behavior. Um, Now, granted, uh, going back uh, a a while ago, uh, right? But, um, and listen, full disclosure, I've never been a Tiger Woods fan, ever. Uh, Going back to his earliest days when he was first uh, setting the golf world uh, on fire with his performances, I was never a Tiger Woods fan. Uh, I always felt that his personality rubbed me the wrong way. Um, you know, sort of found him to be sort of boorish, bit of a bully. Uh, you know, God forbid anybody dare ever question anything about him, which was rare, by the way, and, and rightfully so. I mean, listen, his play spoke for itself. Uh, he was a, an ext- you know, he was the most dominant golfer of, of his era by by a long shot, right? By a lot, rather. Um, but you know, every now and then, someone might have something to say. You know, some sort of mild criticism, and you know that oh, that was the end of that person. He would never grant that person another interview, and they, they're just you know his caddy Steve Williams uh, was uh, was a jerk. I mean, there was just there 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 were just lots of things from for, for me that I found distasteful about him. Uh, and then, of course, you know, all the stuff came out about his uh, infidelity, his you know inveterate philandering. Um, you know, then there was uh, the the very lame, uh, you know, scripted broadcast apology. You know, which frankly was, you know, he was apologizing that he got caught and that all this stuff got out in the open. Um, is really the way it came off. It seemed very insincere, very scripted, very, uh, you know, um, it, yeah. So, uh, you know, all that stuff came out. Um, you know, uh, you, you play golf a lot like I do. You, you play with guys that, that play with guys that have played with him, that know him, that know, you know. You hear stories. Listen, some of the stuff you take with a grain of salt. But, you know, when you constantly hear over and over again that he's one of the cheapest guys on tour when he's the first golfer to make a billion dollars, not a great look. <laughs> um, you know, uh, just listen. Just never my cup of tea. So I'm just going to put that out there, right? Never, never been a Tiger fan. 
Um, and so I find it interesting that we're now treating him like some conquering hero uh, back from, you know, the wars. And um, everyone is so thrilled for him and all that he's had to overcome. Well, most of these things, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. So I understand we all love a redemption story here in this country. And we're all about giving people second chances. And, and, and that's fine. But, I mean, the, 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 the lack of perspective... Uh, and the fact that, I mean, this is not temper, I mean, not even a little bit, any of this, of that was mentioned from, from what I saw in any article. Although I will say this, shockingly enough, the post, the New York post actually did mention, uh, that, you know, he was formerly disgraced or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, and then is now, you know, again, cause he won, right? That's the thing. Cause he won. He won, so all previous sins are forgiven. And listen, I'm not saying that he's the worst human being on the planet and that he shouldn't have every right to go out and continue his career. Of course he should. That's fine. I mean, look, listen, it's unseemly at, at, at best, right? Uh, you know, all the stuff that happened with his marriage, right? And all the, the various women that, that it was, you know. And then, of course, he identified himself as a sex addict and went to rehab. I mean, that's, you know, listen, and he's not the only guy to do this. There are plenty of high-profile famous men that have been inveterate philanderers that have then discovered all of a sudden that they're sex addicts and then, you know, go to rehab for that. I mean, that, 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 I find that whole concept to be laughable, Right. You know, it's basically called zero restraint. Okay, it's I'm a famous person who's desired by many women, and so rather than uh, display some, and I'm married, but I'm not going to display any restraint, and I will just sleep with whomever I want. But uh, and again, he's certainly not alone in that. There's been many, and and again, I'm not. Uh, you know, it's not the the worst thing in the world. Certainly not great. Um. But again, this, this, you know, people crying, Michelle Wee on Twitter, who I like, you know, I'm crying tears of joy right now. I mean, really? I mean, listen, maybe they're good friends, right? She's a professional golfer. She had a similar career arc to him in the fact that she was, you know, at one point a, a, a prodigy. Now, she hasn't enjoyed nearly the professional success on the golf course that Tiger Woods has. And listen, maybe he's acted as somewhat of a mentor to her and he's been great to her. So I, I can't speak to that. I have no idea. Uh, but again, I just I, I thought the the reaction to this was completely over the top. Um, and again, it's uh, it's just it's amazing what we'll forgive and what short memories people have. And listen, he's still beloved clearly. And listen, there's two different things here. Whether or not he's good for golf, I mean, that's indisputable. He's great for golf. Every golfer on, on the tour owes him a debt of gratitude because the purses are bigger because he made the sport more popular. There's no question about that. And all the sponsors and all the TV networks, the golf channel, all of it, I mean, there, there's no question about that, right? But, you know, I mean, let's not act like he's uh, Gandhi and Mother Teresa wrapped up in one and, and can hit a golf ball 300 yards, <laughs> it's a little much. It's a little much. Now, to be fair, he seems somewhat humbled by all of the stuff that he's gone through. Again, self-inflicted. Um, 
And so he seems like he's a better, a more affable person now than he was at the height of his powers, so to speak. Um, you know, he's older and wiser, right? He's, what, 43 years old? Um, but again, I just I thought that the, the reaction on Twitter, uh, in the papers, everywhere, it just was completely over the top. Now, let's get to the actual golf. So, uh, oh, and by the way, there's also the, you know, the injury thing, right, where he had several back surgeries. And now, if you are like I and you subscribe to the theory that most back pain is caused by some sort of trauma, emotional trauma, stress, fear in one's life, right? The famous Dr. John Sarno, uh, you know, Howard Stern is a devotee. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a devotee, but certainly uh, subscribe to a lot of the theories there. And it's not just back pain. There's other, pain can manifest itself in the body in, in several different ways due, again, to mental trauma, stress, fear, anger, um, I mean, I experienced it myself. I, there was a time not that long ago where my feet hurt so bad that I tried to run a half marathon and I had to walk the last seven miles. Um, and then my, after I finally, through therapy, psychological therapy, not physical therapy, understood the root of my fear and what was, what was causing all the anxiety and stress, once I basically let, stopped being afraid of that thing, Guess what? My foot pain completely disappeared, and I've never had an issue with it again, ever. Knock wood. Um, so had the same thing actually with a knee, too. I'd never had a knee injury, played football, never had knee surgery, never hurt my knee, ever. Same thing. And once I identified it, all of a sudden my knee stopped hurting, completely went away. So if you subscribe to that theory, all these back injuries that a guy in the shape that he's in, an athlete at the, you know, in peak physical condition in his 30s, all of a sudden has to have multiple back surgeries, probably because of some stuff going on behind the scenes. Again, largely self-inflicted. So I have a hard time having any sympathy for him when it comes to any of that stuff. As a matter of fact, I have zero. So that's it. All right. Now, getting to the golf, if you watch golf as much as I do, um, you know that he almost won the British Open last year, in fact, was leading, and then Francesco Molinari took, overtook him, just like the reverse happened yesterday. Uh, he won the Tour Championship. Um, he was uh, right in the mix at Bay Hill last year. I mean, he's been playing well. They don't play nearly as many events as he used to, right, because age and the back stuff and whatever, but... When he's played, he's played well. And I understand he's not Dustin Johnson and Rory McIlroy and even Justin Thomas and Brooks Kepka and these guys that bomb at 330, 340. He still hits the ball 300 yards. I mean, that's still plenty distance, okay? And when he's hot, he's the best putter in the, in the sport. Uh, he's always had a really good short game. And plus, he's won Augusta four times. He knows the place like the back of his hand. So the idea that this is some shocking outcome is absurd if you pay attention to golf. Now, all listen, give him full credit for his performance. Winning any golf tournament is hard. So and and you know so and he look that that leaderboard was stacked with really good players. Dustin Johnson, Brooks Koepka has won three out of the last six majors. Um, Molinari, who we just talked about, who won the British last year and played great in Ryder Cup and won another tournament earlier this year. Um, 
you know, it was a very good leaderboard. Lots of good players. Xander Shoffley won a tour championship as a rookie. I mean, he hasn't won a ton yet, but he's only 25. The kid's going to be a really good player. You know, Tony Fee now hasn't won a lot yet, but he's an up-and-coming player, very good player. There are a lot of good players on the leaderboard yesterday. You give them all the credit in the world. However, again, let's not act like he just, you know, was the first guy to land on Mars. It's a golf tournament. He's one of the greatest golfers of all time. He's been playing well for the last year plus. It's a golf course he knows very well. And on top of all that, as beautiful and everything else as Augusta is, it's not that hard a course. It's tricky, but if you know it, it's not that hard. Look at the final scores. There was a million guys 10 under par and better. Now, this is not the U.S. Open where two under par might win and the conditions are impossible. Plus, on top of that, this weekend it was even more so because it rained a bunch, and so the greens were way more receptive than they normally are, much softer. You could go right at pins. Even your misses now, you weren't penalized nearly as much as you might have been in years past. It really wasn't that windy except for a couple of holes, like 12, which obviously ended up biting Molinari and Finau and Brooks Kepka. I mean, you know... All three of those guys put their ball in the water on 12, the short short par 3, which is like an 8 or a 9 iron for these guys. And listen, to Tiger's credit, he saw both those guys put it in the water. He took his ball. He lined up all the way to the left of the tee box, took the water completely out of play, and threw it all the way to the back left part of the green and said, I'm just going to get on and two-putt and get out of here with a par. Even a three-putt for bogey wouldn't have killed him there because Molinari made five and Finau made five. And then on 15, I mean, 15 is par 5. That's a birdie hole. I mean, you've got to birdie that. Molinari made double. I mean, let's be honest. Molinari had a two-shot lead going in yesterday. He was at 13 under. Looked great early, right? Had a bunch of good up and downs for par saves early. Had a bogey. Backed it back up. Got a, made a birdie on 13. But then he had the obviously had the, 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 the he made up for the, the double a little bit on twelve, but that I mean that's a disaster. You can't double twelve. Same thing happened. Remember at Jordan Spieth, what made seven on twelve three years ago or whatever it was when he was I think defending his title at the Masters, right? Put two balls in the water, I believe. So I mean, twelve can get you. It's a tricky hole. I I, I understand. But I mean. Look, Molinari was 13 under. He had two double bogeys on a bat. I mean, you can't you can't throw up a five on a par three and a seven on a par five and expect to win. So while Tiger played well, I mean, he shot 70 yesterday. He shot 200 par. Wasn't some Herculean effort. He didn't play out of his mind. He played well enough to win, but he needed help, and Molinari certainly provided it. <coughs> and if Brooks Kepka doesn't uh, put his ball in the water on 12, he wins, or at least there's a playoff. Because he ended up at 12-under, and 13-under ended up winning it. Now, to be fair, Tiger knew he had a two-shot lead on the last hole, so he played 18 smartly slash conservatively, right? Get on a 3-2 putt and go home with your win. But, again, it's not that big a surprise. If you pay attention. And listen, I, I understand. A lot of people are not me. They don't watch golf like I do. I mean, I watch almost every tournament. I watch the golf channel nonstop. I have it on, on in my apartment all the time. 
So, you know, when I'm at my club playing, you know, when, when I'm finished playing, Golf Channel's on there, too. I mean, I watch it all the time. I get it. Not everybody's me. But there are people that cover golf for a living that act in surprise that, that really shouldn't. Because, if you again, if you're paying attention. Again, see, this is, this is where I start to get in. And, and, and you know what? It's not even Tiger so much that I dislike. He, he, you know, again, never been a fan. He seems... You know, he's a little bit more bearable now than he was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But it's, it's the reaction of the media and creating these false narratives now that this is the most shocking, amazing thing in the history of sports. It's not. It's really not. It's a good story. Listen, I understand he thought five years ago he might not play again, but that's five years ago. I mean, he didn't think last. It's not like he got out of a hospital bed last week and then won the Masters. <laughs> I mean, he's been playing and playing well now for a couple of years. All right, moving on. So, uh, Major League Baseball, you know, it's interesting. So, the Mets off to a decent start. They're 9-6. and six. Just had a four-game sweep. Uh, sorry, four-game split in, in Atlanta. Last night was a little annoying. DeGrom, after a rare bad start earlier in the week against the Twins, was not good again last night against the Braves. Although, of course, the Mets could never hit this Julio Tehran, who, I mean, but that, that guy should give 10% of his salary to the Mets. I mean, this guy is the definition of mediocre against every other team in Major League Baseball, but boy, does he kill the Mets. And no, last night was no different. Mets couldn't do anything, save for a solo home run by J.D. Davis, who, by the way, has been in, so far proved to be a very nice, savvy pickup by, by Brody Van Wagenen. Um, other than the home run by J.D. Davis, Mets got, got nothing done against him. Then the Mets' horrendous bullpen came in and threw more gasoline on the fire, turned, uh, you know, whatever, a 3-1 game into 5-1. Then I think it was 5-3. Then it was 7-3. Good night. See you later. But overall, again, the Mets, there's reason for optimism. Alonzo, McNeil, Conforto, Rosario, J.D. Davis, even Keon Broxton, kid they got from Milwaukee. Lagares has played pretty well so far. Dom Smith has played well in a reserve role. You've got young guys, right? Some new blood. There's, a, there's some juice. There's some energy there. You know, no offense to Jay Bruce, but I mean, you know, and listen, Jay Bruce is a good stand-up guy and a good solid player for the Mets. And look, he's playing well for the Mariners right now. And, and I'm happy for him. No issues with Jay Bruce. But there's not a lot of excitement around Jay Bruce. And again, as I said a bunch last year, you can't have Jay Bruce and Todd uh, uh, Todd Frazier and Azdrubal Cabrera. I mean, and I mean, and again, all except for Frazier. I mean, Cabrera in his own right, a good solid player. Same with Bruce. But you can't have like six guys like that on your team. No, you know, zero athleticism. I mean, it's just you can't have it, right? Nimmo had a horrible start. Seems to have righted the ship a little bit so far. Had a big home run the other night. Put the Mets up after they got down a run. There's just there's a totally different feel to this team. A different energy, a different vibe. And the, and the interesting thing is the Mets have not pitched particularly well so far. The offense is, other, before last night, I think the offense had scored six runs or more in like seven games, eight games in a row. They got shut down last night. Again, they never hit Tehran. But, you know, Cano's not hit well yet so far. He'll get hot, I think, eventually. I hope he's not done. Um, 
But, you know, Alonzo's been a revelation, right? He's got 17 RBIs already in the first 15 games, six home runs, seven doubles. I mean, and he brings a, a, a passion and an energy that's undeniable and infectious, right? Conforto's been pretty good so far. Like I said, Nimmo got off to a very slow start, starting to turn it around a little bit. Jeff McNeil just hits. I mean, the guy's is a hit machine. He's, un- he's been unbelievable. So the lineup has actually been very good. The pitching has not been great. DeGrom's first two starts were great. His last two, he had one real clunker against the Twins. Last night was eh, five innings, three runs, too many walks, four, which is very unlike him. Um, You know, Syndergaard, pretty good, not great. Wheeler's first two starts were bad. His last start was pretty good. Matt's actually, all three starts have been good. The problem with him is he throws a lot of pitches, and so therefore he doesn't get to be able to work deep into games. So he did give him six innings the other night. First time he's been able to go six. Got the win. Pitched very well. The problem is the fifth starter, Jason Vargas, has been pretty much a disaster. He won his first start. He got lucky against a bad Marlins team, a bad lineup, a young lineup, undisciplined. That's the only type of team he's going to have a chance against. He's a soft-tossing, crafty lefty. Can't break a a pane of glass with his fastball. He, you know, he's got to be able to get ahead of hitters, got to be able to get guys to chase pitches out of the strike zone, and good hitting teams like the Braves are not going to fall for that. And, you know, he was awful the other night against the Braves. Now, Callaway had a pretty quick hook, came and took him out after one-third of an inning, and I understand, you know, he walked a lot of guys, he threw 30-something pitches with only getting one out, and Callaway thought, let's try to bring somebody else in here and keep the game close, and for a while it worked, but the guy brought in Corey Oswald was terrible too. And he ended up giving up five runs, and so, you know, the Mets ended up losing that game as well. Um, as bad as Vargas has been, and again, he's, he's going to have a tough time against good hitting teams, against smart teams. Uh, it's, it, it is, it's two starts into the year, three starts into the year. I mean... Or no, it's the second start, right? They skipped his start. He came in out of the bullpen in, one of, in that bad that game against the Twins the other night when DeGrom pitched poorly, and he got roughed up. Uh, you know, he's, not, he's never pitched out of the bullpen before in his life, and the game was already a blowout. Like, I'm not – I mean, it's not great, but I, I, don't, I don't put a whole lot of stock in both good or bad performances in blowouts either way, if you're winning by a lot or losing by a lot. It, it, you know – Talk to me when a guy has to come in and get important outs out of the bullpen. So as bad as Jason Vargas has looked so far, and as unappealing as he is because he's a soft-tossing lefty and he's 36 years old and he was horrendous the first half of the year last year, I mean, I get it. I understand why fans can't stand him and they want him off the team. Uh, Guys, it's 15 games into the year. I mean, I would give him a few more starts before we make a determination. Now, listen, the, the X factor in all this is that Dallas Keuchel, who's been a very good major league pitcher for the last five years or so, is still available. And while he's not nearly as good as he was a couple of years ago when he shut the Yankees out in that one-game playoff, he's still a lot better than Jason Vargas. So there's two options. The Mets can look to try to sign him, or they can try to sign Craig Kimbrell to bolster the bullpen, and then you can move Seth Lugo or Robert Gesellman, both of whom have been starters prior to the last couple of years, into the starting rotation. And now, the, look, the issue with Keuchel is even if you sign him, 
He's not going to be ready for probably another month, right? I mean, the guy hasn't had a spring training. And look at the track record. Those guys like Alex Cobb and, and Lance Lynn last year didn't sign until way late in spring training, and they were both horrendous to start the year. Lance Lynn kind of got it together a little bit late, and then the Yankees traded for him. He gave him a couple okay starts, but, I mean, he was not great. And Alex Cobb is a total and auto disaster for the Orioles last year. So, you know, you got to be careful here. Again, I'd say it'd be at least a month. I mean, the Mets signed Keuchel today. I think you probably wouldn't see him pitch until mid-May. Early, you know, I'd say it's got to be a month. Or maybe you, 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 maybe a few weeks, but his first start, he's going to probably only give you four or five innings tops. Right? And so far, look, the Mets bullpen's been bad. I mean, Diaz has been okay, not great. He has not dominated. He hasn't blown a save yet, but he's given up a few runs, given up a home run or two here and there. He's walked some guys. He's worked out of some jams that he's created of his own. I mean, the stuff is still there. I think he'll be fine. I mean, he still throws 98, still has the wipeout slider. But he has not been great so far. And look, he was amazing last year. 57 saves, only four blown saves, a whip under one. You know, 100 something strikeouts to 24 walks in, seven, in like 70 innings. I mean, the numbers were off the charts ridiculous last year. If you remember, I talked about him several times last year as a guy that nobody was talking about because he plays for Seattle. But I mean, so he's going to be, he's not going to match last year's dominance. But even if he's just not, even if he's a, a notch below that, he's still going to be plenty good enough as a, as a top quality top-notch closer on, on a team hopefully is going to contend for the playoffs. But Familia's not been very good. Justin Williams, Wilson before last night been pretty good. But Lugo's been bad. I mean, he had a decent outing the other night for the first time all year. Gaselman's not been very good. Uh, you know, and then the rest of these guys, Luis Avalon's been bad. They, they called up Paul Seawald for whatever reason. I mean, I, I thought we were done with guys like this who are clearly not major league quality players, but I guess we're not. Um, so, I, I mean, listen, the Mets bullpen is not great. So I think maybe the better move is to sign Kimbrell, who has a closer and or a setup guy, which will be for the Mets, really wants to throw one inning. He'll be ready to go much quicker than Dallas Keuchel will be. And then, again, you can stretch out Lugo and or Gaselman and put them in the rotation. Now, there's no guarantee that they're going to be great, but you would think Lugo in particular would certainly be an upgrade over Vargas, because I mean Lugo at least has decent stuff. It's not great, but I mean Vargas literally his fastball is 85 miles an hour. I mean, you know, he's like a very, very. I'm going to date myself here, but he's like a very, very poor man's Randy Jones. So, um, but overall, look, I'm happy with the Mets so far. I am. Now Callaway has made some decisions that are head scratching. Right, Alonzo was raging hot. He sat him for a game. Dom, they ended up winning the game anyway. Dom Smith played well. You know, McNeil had a four for four night. He sat him the next day, and then you know it, his reasons for for these things are, are dumb. Like he said about Alonzo, well, if I waited until he was cold, I'd I'd, I'd be waiting forever. Well, well, that's just stupid. I mean, it's baseball. Of course, he's going to hit a, a cold stretch. I mean, everybody does. Um, you know, he just he's kind of goofy. He, he doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. He seems like a nice enough guy. Um, you know, even last week, Syndergaard picked a great seven innings. The Mets had a 9-1 lead. 
That's the perfect time to bring in some of these back into the bullpen guys and let them pitch two innings or an inning each in a, in a low stress situation of an eight run lead, right? And maybe try to build their confidence. And yet, and you know, they, 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 typically they baby the starters anyway. He lets Syndergaard come out and pitch the eighth, and then he gives up three runs. And then now he's got to end up using his two top relievers and Familia and Diaz in a game that the Mets were leading 9-1 after seven innings. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And this guy's a pitching coach. It's supposed to be what he knows. So not a lot of confidence in the manager. I think, uh, I think the Mets will win in spite of him, not because of him. But overall, again, I mean, look, the, 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 the best thing so far was when Van Wagenen said in the offseason that if Pete Alonso makes the team on his own merit, he'll be on the opening day roster. They're not going to screw around with making him start the year for two weeks double, at AAA so that they get extra service time. Who knows, first of all, if, if the rule that you, know, you lose a year of free, uh, free agency starts a year earlier, will, if that'll even be a rule in five years from now. And guess what? As Van Wagenen said, you know, if he's great for the next five years, that's a good problem for us to have. And if we really want to re-sign him, that's a good problem. That means he's played really well for us. And guess when you do something like that, the message you send is that you're here to win. You're not here to pinch pennies and worry about something from five years from now, whether or not a guy's going to be a free agent or not, which is what the stupid-ass Wilpons usually do. So kudos to Van Wagenen for probably talking them out of that and saying, no, we're here to win now. And guess what? It first two weeks of the year matter. I know it's a long season, but you might lose the division by one game. And right now the Mets are nine and six. They would not be nine and six if if Pete Alonso with his three fifty batting average, six home runs and seventeen RBIs wasn't on the team for these first two weeks. So kudos to him being Van Wagenen. Obviously to Alonso too for performing. All right, moving over to the other side of town. Look, the Yankees, I understand people are, 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 are aggravated. AG uh, in particular, not happy. Six and nine. Look, Yankees have a ton of injuries, right? Gary Sanchez just went on the DL. Gregorius, we knew was the start of the year on the DL. But Stanton went on the DL. And Duhar went on the DL. Uh, Severino on the DL. Batances now is going to be out an extra six weeks. I mean, they're very Mets-like right now <laughs> with the injury situation with the Yankees. And also very Mets-like, they had that game Friday night against the White Sox where they had a lead, they gave up the lead, it started pouring rain. It was one of those dreary, dank nights that you usually see at either Shea Stadium in the old days or now City Field, that the Mets never win those games either, right? Usually so it's like an afternoon game, there's about 8,000 people there, or it's late in the season when the Mets are already out of it, and they're playing like the Pirates, and they always lose those games. This was just like that, because the White Sox are not supposed to be any good this year. Now, it was a Friday night game, but it wasn't that packed because the weather was bad, and it's early in the year. And, uh, you know, the White Sox hit two home runs late to take a lead, and then basically they were kind of walk-off home runs, even though they're the road team, because the game got called due to bad weather because it was the seventh inning. I mean, right now, the Mets-Yankees thing is kind of like that episode on Seinfeld when, when Elaine... All the bad things start happening in the lane. All the good stuff starts happening to George. And Jerry, of course, is even Steven. 
Uh, it's kind of like that. There's a little bit of a role reversal going on here with the Mets and the Yankees. And, you know, the Yankees thought Patances were going to be out that long. Now he's going to be out for a while. Same thing with Severino. That's also very Met-like, right? Like, oh, it's no big deal. He'll be out for a couple of games, maybe a couple of weeks. You know, and then, oh, out for the year. Now, it hasn't gotten that bad yet with the Yankees as far as the injuries are concerned. Um, but, listen, I mean, they, they, the bottom of their lineup yesterday was some guy named Ursula Andrews. <laughs> Not really, but last name, last name is Ursula uh, the Higiyashi or whatever his name is, the, the, the backup catcher, the third string catcher, and, uh, and, 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 and Harriet Tubman, <laughs> this guy Talkman, who they got from the Rockies. And they got guys I never heard of. I mean, that's not a very good 7 8 9. You know, so guys like Clint Frazier are going to have to step up. You know, I mean, Voight's been pretty good. Judge has been pretty good, not great. He hasn't he hasn't gotten raging high yet. But again, it's early, everybody. Remember, Dodgers were sixteen and twenty six last year, won the division. I remember, I forgot what year it was when Torrey was the manager. The Yankees started like eighteen and twenty eight. I want to say one year, won ninety five games, won the division. The good news, if you're a Yankee fan, is that the Red Sox are off to a miserable start too. They lost again today, Marathon Day, to the Orioles. By the way, congratulations to Chris Davis, the first baseman, former slugging first baseman from the Orioles. I mean, this poor bastard went 54 at-bats, I think it was, without a hit, long, uh, longest in the history of baseball, dating back to last year. Finally got off to Schneider over the weekend, uh, weekend against the Red Sox, hit his first home run today against the Red Sox. Um, so... Uh, you know, I mean, listen, no, uh, nobody wishes that on their worst enemy. I mean, the poor guy, I mean, it's just got to be awful. And I mean, by all accounts, he's a nice guy, too. So it's not like he's some jerk that you kind of secretly like happy for, a little schadenfreude. Like, it's, this is not that. Now, granted, yes, he has a, he got a huge contract. That's not his fault. The guy had back-to-back years with 50, 53 home runs and 47 home runs. And that was not that long ago. It was like three, four, five years ago. But, I mean, last year he had it was a disaster. He won 68. But anyway, so the Red Sox are a mess right now. Now, I understand Tampa Bay. Look, Tampa Bay is, what are they, 12-4 and four or something like that? We'll take a quick look at the standings here, even though it's super early. Um, yeah, Tampa Bay's 12-4. and four. Tampa Bay's actually sneaky good. I mean, remember, they won 90 games last year. They had Blake Snell, the reigning American League Cy Young Award winner. They picked up Charlie Morton in the offseason, who, you know, has figured it out in his early to late mid-30s. You know, former high draft pick, I think, from the, the Braves, then he went to the Pirates. You know, never really worked for him there. Uh, Astros picked him up, kind of relearned how to pitch a little bit there. Had been very good for them. Um, he's off to a good start. And then they got uh, this guy Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows, two guys they got in the trade from the Pirates last year for Chris Archer, who was supposed to be one of their young studs. And Glasnow has been great in his first couple of starts, and Austin Meadows is hitting the crap out of the ball, starting in outfield. They also got Tommy Pham last year from the Cardinals. He's the anti-Chris Davis. I think he's gotten on base in 47 games in a row going back to last year. Um... You know, they got Abisail Garcia, which is the most Tampa Bay move of all time. Right? Abisail Garcia was supposed to be the next Miguel Cabrera. He came up uh, about five years ago as a rookie with the Tigers. And he looked like he looks like him. Same batting stance, same body type, like looked a lot like Miguel Cabrera. Got traded to the White Sox, I think in the Iglesias trade, the shortstop. 
Never, you know, had did okay for the White Sox, but never really panned out. You know, it was a low uh, money signing this year off season, but you could tell the guy can hit. I mean, it never, you know, it hasn't manifested itself yet the way people thought. Meanwhile, he's off to a great start with the Rays. I mean, the Rays are legit good. It's a good team. They've got some players over there. So, but, I mean, they're not going to play 750 ball the whole year. So my point is, Yankee fans, you're 6-9. and nine, It's 15 games. Everybody relax. You're going to get healthy. Guys are going to start to play better. Judge is going to go on, on a scalding hot streak at some point. Torres will get hot. Sanchez is going to come back. I mean, these guys, you know, you're going to get Andujar back. Now, listen, Jay Happ has looked terrible so far. He's not great anyway, but he's better than this. You know, Paxton has been eh so far. Supposedly he was tipping pitches against the Astros. And look, they got swept by the Astros. The Astros certainly, first of all, the Astros are one of the best teams in baseball. And second of all, uh, and it was in Houston, and the Astros just kind of seemed to have the Yankees number. Now listen, there was some sloppy baseball, very Met-like again in some of those games. And and and, and uh, look, if you're a Girardi guy, you know, like AG, you're not going to like Boone. Like Boone after the, you know, Boone's not a guy who's going to call guys out in the media. And, and listen, Girardi never really called anybody out either in a, in, in a, I thought, in a disrespectful way. But he also is not going to lie to you. You know, Gary Sanchez is being lazy and not getting down and blocking balls. Girardi was going to say something about it. And, you know, I guess I, you know, and I guess maybe that, 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 that offended the delicate sensibilities of the millennial generation over there uh, in Yankee land. And that's why they had to get rid of Girardi for, you know, kinder, gentler Aaron Boone. But uh, I'm sorry. Like, at some point, you got to start holding guys accountable. And there's different ways to do it. Again, it doesn't have to be fire and brimstone. Like the days of Dallas Green and Lee Elia and guys, you know, knocking over, uh, you know, the buffet table. Those days are over. I, I, I'm, I've accepted that fact. That's not how it works anymore. Players won't have it. They'll tune you out. But you could also do like Joe Torre did. And I'll never forget this story from the from the '90s when I think it was Bernie Williams. Uh, had one of his, you know, early in his career, Bernie Williams was not a very good base runner. And he had some sort of base running mishap. And the next day, Torrey had the guys out before the game, before batting practice, doing base running drills. I mean, now that would never happen today anymore either because guys got to be, you know, in the video room and looking at charts and spray charts and looking at the analytics. God forbid anybody actually work on their craft on the field. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there are definitely diff- different ways to do it. And, you know, again, Boone seems like a nice guy, but um, the sloppy play that we're seeing, we didn't see that under Girardi. And, again, if we did, it was mostly with the catcher. And Girardi, by the way, uh, has the, the, the credentials as being, you know, an excellent defensive catcher for however many years he was in the major leagues, 10-plus years. Um, listen, I, I was a big Joe Girardi guy. I'd take him as the Mets manager tomorrow. But Yankees are going to be just fine. Red Sox, on the other hand, is weird, right? So their big question mark coming in the season was supposed to be starting pitching. I mean, sorry, it was supposed to be the bullpen. Bullpen has actually been fine. Starting pitching has been wretched so far. I mean, Sale has not been good. Dave Price finally gave him a good start the other day. Uh, but Eovaldi's been bad. Porcello's been atrocious. I mean, and today they only scored one run against the Orioles. Like, they... Everything's, you know, this, this, this seems like the classic World Series hangover. So if you're a Yankee fan, that's got to make you feel good. They play the Red Sox, I believe, maybe starting tomorrow. Um, 
So, and again, it's it's stupid early though. Stupid early. All right, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with the NBA playoffs right after this. All right, we're back here on Jamal About Sports. So, NBA playoffs, listen, my netties, God bless them. I, I mean, they played on Saturday. They went into Philly, beat them. I mean, got out, got, 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 got punched in the mouth a little bit early, didn't falter, kept the game close, went on a 20-to-1 run. Uh, had a big lead. I didn't love the way they ended the first half. You know, they, they had a double-digit lead for a while. Jimmy Butler hit a three to cut it to eight right before the half. Nets were giving up a ton of offensive rebounds in that first half. And I'm like, eh, this, this might not bode well here. You know, you go on the road, you try to steal game one. You know, the Nets really have outplayed the Sixers big time in this first half. They really should have a bigger lead than just eight. But meanwhile, they played great in the second half. The, the one piece of good news about that was D'Angelo Russell, who's the Nets' best player, did not have a very good first half. I think he was 2 for 10. So he hadn't played well, and they were still up 8. So that, that, that made me think, okay, even though I don't love how they finished into this first half, on the flip side, their best players haven't had a very poor first half, and they're still up 8. Then he played great in the second half. Uh, their glue guys, Ed Davis and Dudley, were fantastic. Ed Davis, I've been telling you about all year, is a rebounding machine. He had 12 points and 16 rebounds off the bench. Dinwiddie chipped in with 18. Karis LeVert played great. He had 20-something. I mean, what, what you have to love about the Nets also, just long-term, is they've got a very good young core of players, right? Russell's 23. Rodion's Kuruts is, is 20. Um, Dinwiddie's 26. LeVert's 24. Jared Allen's 20, the fro, the tall, skinny center. Who look, he got bullied and, and knocked around by Embiid in the first game, got into early foul trouble. That, that's going to happen. That's why you have a guy like Ed Davis, even though he's undersized at 6'9", but he's a smart, heady veteran. And look, Embiid is clearly playing hurt, right? He started out strong. You could see he was a little winded. He didn't play uh, that many games down the stretch for Philly. He got a little winded. He took five threes, missed all five of them. I mean, he's seven foot two ninety, but that's today's NBA, right? Everybody's got to be a stretch five or a stretch four. Um, so listen, great job by the Nets. But again, moving forward, I mean, the Nets have a good young core. Nets should be around for a while. They should be a playoff team for a while. Dinwiddie's locked up. They're going to have to do something with Russell, I think, in a year or two. But Jared Allen's not going anywhere for a while and should only get better. Uh, Kuroot, same thing. Levert, same thing. I mean, the, the Nets, it's a night, that's five good young players. The oldest one's Dinwiddie at 26. And then you've got the glue guys like Dudley, Damare Carroll, and Ed Davis coming off the bench. That's perfect. That's a really, really good formula for the Nets right now. Now listen, Jared Dudley's not great, but he's a guy that every good team has a guy like Jared Dudley. He can hit an open three. He's a, he, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a nuisance to the other team, right? He gets his hands on a lot of passes, gets dives for loose balls, sets picks, right? Keeps balls alive. I mean, he's just he's one of those good glue guys, right? Limited physically for sure, right? Has the bad body. But you know what? Guy's been in the league for 10 years for a reason, So, listen, I'm going to the game. Me and my buddy Pete are going to the game. I think I said on the show a couple weeks ago, Nets make the playoffs. I'm going. I'm going. We're going Thursday. 
first first uh, first level too. Stepped up, shelled out a few few shekels. Good seats. I'm excited. Let's play tonight, eight o'clock. Worst case scenario, one one going back to Brooklyn. You would have taken that in a heartbeat. Imagine they win tonight. They're up two zero. The chance to go up three zero in Brooklyn. I'm really looking forward to it. Actually, really am. Rest of the weekend, uh, next to me, most interesting and fun game to watch was Portland OKC yesterday. If you've ever listened to the show, you know I've always kind of had a little affinity for OKC. But now that my man Ennis Cantor, Cantor is on the Trailblazers, right, and I talked about that pickup however many shows ago, well, all he did was go out and give you 20 points, 18 rebounds, with three or four massive offensive rebounds late in the fourth quarter yesterday to keep possessions alive when it was a four-point game, when OKC wouldn't go away, when Portland got out to a huge lead, we were up 39-21, I think, after the first quarter, then Portland went ice cold, OKC kept grinding, coming back. Westbrook did his thing, got him back in the game. Paul George was absolutely atrocious. To be fair, and I'm not a big Paul George guy. I think he's overrated. Uh, His playoff performances have been laughable. To be fair, the guy's playing with a bad shoulder, and he tried to gut through. Now, you could argue that if you've got a bad shoulder and your shoulder's your right shoulder, and that's your shooting shoulder, you shouldn't be jacking up 13 threes or whatever it was he did. He did make a couple late in the fourth quarter. But, I mean, he was awful yesterday overall. He couldn't make a shot. But Westbrook played well. Jeremy Grant played really well. I've talked about him before. I mean, that was a savvy, shrewd move by Sam Presti, OKC's general manager, getting him from Philly a couple years ago. I mean, he's an excellent defender, really good shot blocker. He's turned into a nice player. But Cantor was huge for them. Lillard made a couple of big shots. McCollum, look, I keep saying this. I'm going to say it till I'm blue in the face. As good as McCollum and Lillard are, the backcourt for Portland. It just, look, it's only going to get them to a certain level, right? Like they won 48 games or whatever it is this year. That, like that's their plateau. That's their max. And you watch both those guys play. They're both really good and really talented, but there's way too many possessions where one of the two just dribbles around for way too long and then jacks up like an off-balance shot with the shot clock running down. I mean, it happens way too much. It happened a ton yesterday. That's how OKC was able to get back in the game. And listen, I know, I know I'm like the leader of the Ennis Cantor fan club, but I mean, he's one of the best low post scorers in the league. Can, Terry Stotts, who's a good coach, by the way, for Portland, but can we run a couple of plays for him, please? Can we throw the ball down in the post? And guess what? If he gets double teamed, then he can kick it out to Little or McCollum, and they might have an, a, a, be able to set their feet and have a wide open jumper. Jeez. But anyway, Portland ended up winning that game. They needed it in the worst way. They were 0 for their last 10 in the playoffs. They got swept and embarrassed last year as the three seed against the number six seed OKC, uh, against New Orleans. Uh, they got swept the year before by Golden State. No great shame there. And then I guess obviously had lost their last four games other than that in two other prior playoff series. So it was a home game. They needed it in the worst way. Look, Oklahoma City's a good team too. But... Portland needs to win this series, and I'm thrilled for Ennis Cantor. And again, I'm glad that the Knicks think Kevin Knox 
is part of the solution, but somehow Ennis Cantor isn't. I mean, listen, I love what Mitchell Robinson did for the Knicks this year. It's a completely different player than Ennis Cantor. Think about what a great center tandem that would be. You got, first of all, both guys are great rebounders. Cantor's one of the best offensive rebounders in the league, but you got one guy who's kind of burly, plays below the rim in Cantor, but he's got a great low post scoring game. And then you got a young, tall, wiry, you know, DeMar, De, 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 uh, DeAndre Jordan, Marcus Camby type, and Mitchell Robinson as the other center who, you know, runs around and blocks shots and scores all his points on alley oop dunks and putbacks. You couldn't, you couldn't have a, a good team with both those guys on your team? And by the way, Ennis Cantor's 26. I mean, enough, enough with talking about what Ennis Cantor can't do. You know, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna revert back to my Camby corollary, right? John Calipari said about Marcus Camby year million years ago. Stop everybody who focus on what he can't do. Yes, he's not a, a, a brawler. He's not a, a body. He's not a big physical player. He's not gonna have a, a great jump shooter. But what he can do is block shots, rebound, run the floor, play defense, and finish in transition. And and guess what? When the Knicks finally embraced that in 1998, when Oakley got hurt in the strike year, or was it 99? Camby and Sprewell coming off the bench, that the, the Knicks took off and won as an eight seed against the one seed Heat that year and got to the finals. Yeah, it was ninety nine. Went went in and, and destroyed the Hawks in the next round, and Camby was a big part of it. Enough with what Ennis Cantor can't do. Yes, I understand he's not Bill Russell defensively. We all know that. Playoff game against a good team yesterday, twenty and eighteen. Ridiculous. The stupidity of the NBA is beyond belief. And you know what? I'm not even going to get on Fizdale about this because Fizdale actually mentioned that early in the year when it was very early in the season about, you know, I'm tired of hearing about Aaron Ennis Cantor can't do. But this dopey front office for the Knicks clearly wanted nothing to do with them. They made Fizdale bench him. Cantor got upset, and, and rightfully so. You watch the guy, the guy loves to play. That's the other thing. His attitude is infectious. The guy tries. Effort is not an issue with him. But Kevin Knox, who's 19, has effort issues. But they love Kevin Knox. See? See, I was going to try to go the whole show with being calm. And then, you know, I talk about the Knicks, and this is what happens. All right, moving on. San Antonio, Denver. San Antonio, you know, seven seed. Uh, you know my feelings on them. The gold standard in the NBA for the last 20 years. Not surprisingly, they won. I know Denver finished with the second best record in the league. They have some nice players. Sorry. Sorry. San Antonio's going to win that series. Uh, and I understand I didn't say it before. That they're only on nothing. San Antonio's winning that series. Toronto, Orlando. Toronto's second seed. I mean, look. They talk about playoff demons. I mean, they can never get over the hump. Kyle Lowry, I, I mean, look, good player. I've talked about him many times on the show. Uh, can you do something in the playoffs at some point, please? He was awful the other night. 0 for 7, didn't score. His opposite number, DJ Augustin, who I basically thought was Jameer Nelson. I mean, they're the same guy, basically. Short squat point guards. Uh, but DJ Augustine's had a great year. For Orlando and had a great game, scored 24, including a dagger three late in the fourth quarter after Kawhi Leonard hit two huge threes for Toronto. I mean, Kawhi Leonard played great. Uh, Pascal Siakam played great. Those guys held up their end of the bargain. They got zero points from Kyle Lowry. Zero. Fred Van Vliet, his backup, played great. You know what? 
I said about them, same as I say about Portland. They had to break up that backcourt between DeRozan and Kyle Lowry. They might have chose wrong there. Maybe they should have kept DeRozan because DeRozan's playing for San Antonio, and they're going to win their series. Toronto, look, maybe it's going to be a wake-up call for them, but with all that baggage and all that pressure about them underachieving in the playoffs, and that's why they got rid of Dwayne Casey. Right now, they have Nick Nurse as their head coach. I mean, yeah, there's a lot. And listen, Orlando... I, I look. That, that that is not a great team. I mean, they're supposed to the best player, Aaron Gordon, didn't even do much. But meanwhile, they had Michael Carter Williams coming off the bench. I didn't even know he was still in the league. He made a big three late in that game. I, I, I mean, Toronto. That you cannot figure that team out. But look, you, you got to suspect. I mean, to be Kyle Lowry did have eight assists. Whatever can't be going zero for seven. No points. Can't. Got to be better than that. And plus, again, your opposite number put up 24 points and hit the, the dagger three. So that series is interesting, Bears watching. Milwaukee-Detroit, disaster. We knew that. Detroit shouldn't even be in the playoffs. Blake Griffin didn't even play. Uh, I mean, Detroit has two players somebody might want. Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond. The rest of that roster is garbage. I mean, it is. I Reggie Jackson puts up a lot of points. He's a gunner. He doesn't play any defense. A team in any good. Uh, Milwaukee is going to roll that series. Not surprising. Boston, Indiana, hideous game yesterday. 84-74 Boston. Uh, Indiana, not that good either. Boston, if Boston were to ever lose this series, I mean, forget it. Um, and then Golden State Clippers. You know, Clippers played tough for a while. Got some really crappy calls went against them late in the first half of that game. They lost their cool and composure. Uh, Steph Curry did his thing and went off and made a million threes. But I'll be interested to see. I mean, look, Doc Rivers can really coach. You know, Gallinari had a great year. We talked about him. Montrez Harrell and Lou Williams, two of the, the two best bench players in the NBA. You know, I just don't think the Clippers have enough to keep up with Golden State. Golden State's a better team. Um, but they'll be feisty. And then Houston, Utah. Uh, again, Utah, you know, Donovan Mitchell had a great rookie year. He's been good this year, not great. Um, I mean, Houston should really roll them. I mean, you, you would think that the Western Conference Finals is going to be Golden State and Houston. Oh, it can't be. That's right. It can't be. I think they got to play each other before they get to that. Um, so, and then again, in the East, uh, I mean, you'd think it's going to be Milwaukee versus either Boston or, I guess, Toronto? maybe Philly I mean the East is not very good folks it's just not not a great conference I mean when the Detroit Pistons are making the playoffs and I get it they're the eighth seed but and Orlando is making it as the seven and look you know I like you know I like my netties now but I mean they're the sixth seed they're 42 and 40 I mean it's not exact and I understand they were eight and 18 so they played much better over the last however many you know parts of the year here um but you know we'll see you know what would be interesting is portland see if portland can make some noise i mean look Portland was 19 and 6 the last 25 games again yes uh nurkic got hurt but uh, again you can't get a better replacement than ennis Cantor at the center position they have the two great guards uh al farouk aminu is a really good kind of all-around glue guy type of player at small forward. Mo Harkless, not bad. St. John's kid. Uh, Seth Curry, Steph Curry's younger brother, uh, has turned into a, you know, a useful bench player, can knock down threes. 
Uh, Jake Lehman from Maryland, although he didn't play yesterday, but he's played a lot during the year for them. Yeah, they, they, they could be, they could, could be a little, they, they could be a thorn in someone's side. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, thanks for listening. Check us out on SoundCloud, iTunes. The website is jamalaboutsports.com. The Facebook page is jamalaboutsports. And the Twitter account is at jamalaboutsport, no S. Enjoy all the sports this week. Baseball, NBA playoffs. We'll be back to do another show next week. Probably bring in AG as well for a draft preview as the NFL draft is not this Thursday, but next Thursday. But until then, thanks for listening, and peace out.